Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. All right, today we're going to talk about now Staff Sergeant Salvatore Junta. At the time of his citation, at the time of his action, he was a specialist. I uh, served in the Battle Company, part of the 2nd Battalion, uh, 503rd Infantry Regiment that rolls up under the 173rd Airborne Brigade. And this is going to be for actions in Afghanistan. So a little more current, or a little more modern Medal of Honor citation here. In fact, so I'm, I'm going to use specialist as his rank. That's how this um, event plays out. He's a specialist at the time. He would you know, stay in the military and, and, and exit the military as a staff sergeant. Um, but for the sake of this, uh, this story, we're going to use, use his rank at the time specialist. So specialist Junta, um, would go on to be the first living medal of honor recipient since the Vietnam war. Um, that would change as the conflicts progressed, but, uh, but that was a big moment for, for the country, I'll say. Um, this was, we, we took a long time to, there was a period of time where there, where there were no Medal of Honor recipients or very few, I'll say very few coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And we'd been at war for years and years, hundreds of thousands um, had gone through combat. So this was a really big moment for, I'll say the military and for the country to be able to recognize the valor of one of our own that's still alive and, and, and can tell his story and, and share his experiences. So specialist Salvatore Junta would be awarded the medal of honor for the following actions. Serving in the Korongal Valley, Afghanistan in 2007. Um, this was a hot spot. The Korongal is a rough place to be at baseline. It's in Kunar province, which is a little bit east of Kabul. It's in the mountains leading into Pakistan. So it borders, it's in Afghanistan, sits on the eastern border with Pakistan. And it's just an area that has been, nobody's really tamed Kunar as, as a whole, let alone the Korangal Valley. It's steep valleys um, with very few entrances and exits. You have to travel to really get up the valley. You have to travel the valley floor and you've got uh, mountains, mountains, not hills, mountains overlooking your progress. Uh, there's very few ways other than via aircraft in and out. There's, it's just a desolate area. And it's, if you have to defend yourself, holding up in the Korongal is a good place to do it. And historically, that's what's happened quite often. It happened during the Soviet invasion. It happened um, post 9-11, there were Al-Qaeda elements hanging out in Kunar and in the Korangal. And, and definitely during the 2001 to 2010 window where Korangal saw the, the bulk of their heavy fighting, Taliban are hanging out there or and not exclusively Taliban, but we'll say um, anti-Afghan government forces. And today it's, it's, you know, here we sit in 2020, it's, it's almost certainly back in control of um, Taliban elements. It's so deep valleys. There's a lot of forest that makes it 
hard. It's, it's a mix of rock and forest and steep elevations. It's just a tough place to fight, a tough place to maneuver. Easier for somebody that doesn't have a rucksack on or body armor or carrying a ton of extra ammunition. It's a really good place to fight if you're running around in you know, just your clothes and an assault rifle, conducting harassing attacks or, or lobbing mortars or rockets. So it's a good place to be on the defense, a difficult place to be on the offense. And I think that's something that we, as the U.S. military, had we, we, we struggled with. We really struggled to, to create much change in the Korangal over the course of the entire war. In 2007, this was a hot time for the Korangal Valley. Um, you, you look at, there's some great uh, movies and books. Uh, Restrepo is one of those. It's worth taking a look at. It chronicles um, a lot of this time period. There were just, I mean, daily, daily small arms contact up and down the valley. And one of the things that the American forces decided to do was conduct something called Operation Rock Avalanche. This was going to be a battalion-level operation. I think 800 to 1,000 when you include enablers like engineers and interpreters and, and, uh, and aviation assets. So maybe about a thousand is a good number to go with a thousand or so Americans plus some Afghan partners. We're going to push through the Valley in some kill capture missions for a few Taliban cells. Specialist Junta's unit is where they're kind of on the back end of this and they're getting ready to head I guess I'll say home um, to their, their combat outpost. Um, and they're getting ready. So they're getting ready. The, I think it was cop Coral at the time is, was what it was called. I had to double check that, but they're heading home. So they've been in overwatch position for, for a couple of days. They're going to start moving home. The, uh, the sun has set. It's dark, but there's enough illumination. This is important. There's enough illumination to where they don't need night vision goggles. So there's kind of this weird middle ground when it's, you need the moon for night vision goggles to work. I mean, if you're in a, if you're inside in a, in a pitch black room, you can't, night vision doesn't work. You need some level of um, a little bit of light, a little bit of moonlight. But if you're outside and it's bright enough, it's almost easier to go without night vision goggles um, than, than with. This is one of those nights. So it's frustrating when that happens because it's kind of, should I have them on? Should I not have them on? What am I missing? It's a, it's a challenge. This is a night like that where it's, should they be on, should they be off? They're opting for not having night vision goggles on, which kind of puts you at, um, kind of puts you level with the enemy when it comes to, which isn't always the case. Usually the American forces have a leg up at night because we can see with night vision goggles. So when we don't need those, we're a little more level than we normally would like. His element, he's a team leader, uh, especially Junta is a team leader in charge of uh, a rifle team of four, they begin pushing out um, back to their outpost and pretty quickly find themselves in the middle of an enemy ambush. So the one of the reasons the Korangal is such an easy place to defend is you can watch and look from long, long distances away and see what the enemy is doing, specifically the Americans. We, we're not, we're easy to see, all things considered. We, we look alike and there, there would be people reporting on their movements, and it would have been easy for this Taliban element to understand, hey, they have to get back to their outpost. They're in position A. they got to get to position B. We can set up a few locations between here and there and see if we can ambush them. It's not an open field. They can't just walk anywhere they want. 
That appears to be what happened. This enemy element moved into position, about 10 or 15 fighters, with PK and machine guns, AK-47s, and rocket-propelled grenades. They set up, and so as an ambush, waiting for your enemy to, to walk into what's called a kill zone, which is where you can really mass the firepower of this ambush and any other assets into this, we'll call it a box. And Junta's unit walks unknowingly into this enemy ambush. Now there's aircraft overhead, but the fight is so close that they can't tell the difference between friendly and enemy. These Taliban fighters are maybe 10 meters away. They're right on top of them in what's called a near ambush. Right out the gate, the two men at the front of the column are hit. The, the gentleman up front, see Sergeant Joshua Brennan, is hit multiple times and falls. Right behind him, you have Specialist Frank Eckrode, who also falls wounded. What happens here, it's, we're going to talk about it for a few minutes, but we're talking split-second decision-making. So gunfire erupts. Two right out the gate fall wounded. You know, we, we, we now know wounded at the time. It's not clear. Um, the rest of the element has to react to contact. They begin firing towards the enemy position, which appears to their, you know, we'll say to their left, to their, to their west. And they begin firing and fall back. Now, when I say fall back, it's, it's not very far. They're not moving hundreds of yards. It's a couple of feet, a couple of yards to find some degree of cover from where they where they were. As they fall back and they get to this little piece of cover, just a little change in the terrain, Specialist Junta, you know, as he's returning fire, recognizes that they're getting fire from another direction. They should be protected, but they're not. And it clicks that they're in the middle of an L-shaped ambush, which is incredibly deadly to be on the receiving end of. That is what it sounds like. It's an L. And you sit in the middle of it with the enemy sits in the middle of it, which means that you have, or I'll say the target sits in the middle of the L, which means you have fire coming from two sides. And it's generally just a matter of time before you get rolled up. Seeing this, again, this is all happening in split seconds. Specialist Junta consolidates his men, his team, into a defensible position, now recognizing there's fire coming from both sides. His squad leader was hit or um, they thought hit, hit in the helmet. And it, it ended up just kind of skinning his head. Um, so he would have been, yeah, so just, just skinned his head, didn't actually um, cause any serious wounds. So Junta went out to grab him and, and helped him kind of just pull him back into his lines. And they decided they needed to, the best way to survive this near ambush, this L-shaped near ambush is going to be to attack into it, which is which is what's trained. But it's a lot easier to do that in training with blanks and with your buddies than when you've got, when you're outnumbered two or three to one um, at close range with live ammunition. Junta, in, in his first movement out, gets hit in the body armor and the uh, the rocket on his back gets hit. So there's, there's bullets everywhere. He and his guys are consolidated and they decide to assault into the teeth of this ambush to break it up. They lead with grenades. And that was something that I remember um, hearing often is the term lead with HE. And the idea of that is HE being high explosive. So you lead your assault with that. And, and, and leading with HE does a couple things. It's loud. 
Well, first off, you might kill the enemy. Great. You might wound them, um, but also it's loud and disorienting. Frag grenades going off are loud. 203 grenade launcher rounds going off are loud, especially when they're right next to you. There's a flash. There's there's smoke. It's confusing. So if you lead with HE, you get you have the possibility of disorienting the enemy. That's what they do. They lead with HE, throw hand grenades, again, 10, 15 yards away against this enemy position, and jump up and assault directly into it. As the enemy attack starts to fade, it's still there's still plenty of fire raining down on them. But they move forward and they're able to recover their first wounded soldier, Specialist Ekru, who shot a couple times. They started administering first aid to him, get him behind a covered position. But then arises a problem, and this is where, where Specialist Junta, where his actions really stand above and beyond. Sergeant Brennan should have been right near Special Deck Road. They couldn't see him. Now, again, it's dark, and you're talking knee-to-waist-height brush. It's not like a cleared-out area, but still they can't find him. And there's bullets hitting all over the place, flying overhead, explosions still. The enemy's right on top of you. But Sergeant Brennan's not where he should be, and he's not back with the rest of his guys. So Specialist Junta, with enemy fire hitting in all directions, flying overhead, moves forward towards the crest of the hill, fully exposed. And as he comes over the top of the hill, sees three figures moving down the other side. He quickly identifies that the three figures are two Taliban fighters and Sergeant Brennan, a wounded Sergeant Brennan, being carried down the hill, taken, taken prisoner. Junta charges, firing his weapon, killing one of the Taliban fighters, wounding the other, able to, and he rescues Sergeant Brennan pulls him back into American lines. They set up a defensive perimeter and hold on until reinforcements arrive. The battle dissipates from there. Um, Specialist Ekrod would survive. Um, Sergeant Brennan was very seriously wounded and would unfortunately pass away the following day in surgery. For his actions that day, Specialist Junta would be awarded the Medal of Honor. And it's it's crazy to think of how quickly he acted and how that quick of action saved saved his buddy falling into enemy hands and it wouldn't be crazy there's two things to not take action right away and be overwhelmed in the face of this L-shaped ambush i mean that's how that's that squad should be wiped out it was the aggressiveness and the decision-making of it's time, get up and go directly into the ambush. It's doctrine, it's taught, but it's so hard to think of in the split second. Think of the training. Think of how, how deeply ingrained that is to the training to stand up under heavy enemy fire at night. And sh- after a couple of your buddies have been shot and for all you know, have been killed and it charged directly into that enemy fire. It makes sense on paper. It worked here, so it works, but the guts that it takes to execute that is wild. And that is not unique to um, Specialist Junta in this case. You know, we need to remember that the rest of his team also stood up and was assaulting with him, and they were right in the middle of this as well. Um, but what's what's interesting to me is to think that had he taken his time, had this element taken its time and kind of regrouped, that wouldn't have been crazy. 
if they needed a minute or two to get their bearings or to call for support or, or, or whatever it might be, that's okay. Now, in this situation, time is of the essence, and the faster you can push into the ambush, the better, because the longer you sit there, the more likely it is the enemy is maneuvering around your side and really coming to, to bear down on you. But they didn't. He pushed through fast, and because he pushed through fast, he was able to find Sergeant Brennan as he was being pulled away. I mean, I, I don't, you know, an extra 30 seconds, and, and Brennan might be down the hill and out of sight. Um, an extra minute, he might be in a vehicle. An extra five minutes, who knows? Um, it was the it was the violence of action and the quick decision to get up and go in the face of that fire that that allowed his buddy to not fall into enemy hands. So, to have a crazy fight on October twenty fifth, two thousand seven, and you'll see as we get into more and more of these stories, we're gonna come back to the Cornwall Valley. It is a vicious battlefield. Um, there's a lot of American lives that were lost, a lot of Afghan lives as well, lost in the Cornwall Valley over the course of America's war in Afghanistan from uh, you know, that originated in 2001. For this one, Specialist Salvatore Junta awarded the Medal of Honor for actions in the Cornwall Valley, 25 October 2007, saving his buddy from being captured by Taliban forces. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.